stand and let us read today's scripture portion together? It's from Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and it will be projected on the screen behind me. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Lord, this is your word to us. So now give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, hearts to believe and receive it. Pray that we would have lives that are therefore transformed by it, and all of it would lead to your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what we started talking about some weeks ago here at Samma Road has been Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we said that this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And we said that Jesus preached this sermon after having burst onto the scene and announced to the world that the kingdom of God was at hand. And we said that that meant that Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God, that is the rule of God, the reign of God, the reality in which God sits on the throne, that reality had broken into the world through him and that God's rule and reign would be now known in this world. And that kingdom wasn't going to come by force. It wasn't going to be military conquest. It was going to spread real slow but wide until it reached to the ends of the earth, until it covered the whole world, until the reign of God was known here to the ends of the earth. Now, to be honest, Jesus' disciples who first heard him had no idea what he had in store for them. No idea about the size or the scope of this movement that Jesus had just established and launched. They had no idea how far and how wide and how pervasive this thing was going to be. I mean, for, for one, most of the people Jesus was speaking to had never traveled more than 50 miles beyond their home. Right? Or, or you think about it, this is in the day where there's whole continents that have not yet been discovered. Right? So when you, when you, you think of the edge of the earth, there's a whole reality they don't even have data yet to compute. They can't even have the language to fathom what Jesus means when he says that this kingdom is going to go to the ends of the earth. That his rule and reign is going to be known throughout the whole world. And this world transforming global movement was going to be kicked off and started with this speech that we read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, if you hear the opening of that speech and you hear who it is that Jesus has in mind that is going to lead this global movement, that is going to spearhead this world transformation, if you hear the kind of people Jesus has in view as who is going to be swept up into this movement, who is going to become citizens of this kingdom, and the impact that they're going to have, if you're honest, you're thinking to yourself, this movement is not going to go anywhere. Because Pastor Benny walked us for two weeks through those first verses called the Beatitudes. So I won't go over them again, 
But you know that section where he starts with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One pastor lumped all the words together and said, here's the list of who Jesus intends to change the world with. Are you ready? Poor, sad, meek, hungry, thirsty, merciful, pure, peacemaking, persecuted, reviled, insulted people. That's exactly who you had in mind, right? When you think of, here's world-changing people, here's who is going to turn the world upside down, that's exactly the list you would have thought of. Poor, sad, meek, thirsty, hungry, merciful, pure, peacemaking, persecuted, reviled, insulted people. I don't know about you, but I, I would say that doesn't sound very promising. This is the group of people that is supposed to take over the Roman Empire that just in a few decades would be using them as torches to light the gardens and as sport to be fed to lions. These are the people that are going to respond to that and win the whole world to, to the lengths and, and, and depths that they don't even yet have data to compute. And yet, friends, hear me. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. This week on our church blog, I had put up a video from a network called Acts 29, which is a church planting network that we're a part of. And in it was talking about this movement of the kingdom of God. And, and our friend Doug Logan, one of the church planters that we support in Camden, New Jersey, was narrating this. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a two-minute clip from that and hear him describe to you the movement of the kingdom of God. So, so watch this for a second. In Jerusalem... A.D. 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, and the movement began. In A.D. 42, Mark brought the gospel to Egypt. In A.D. 49, Paul went to Turkey and then to Greece. And in A.D. 52, Thomas left for India, the movement advanced. In AD 174, the first Christians were reported in what is now Austria. In AD 280, the first rural churches emerged in Italy. And by AD 350, nearly 32 million Christians inhabited the Roman Empire. In AD 432, St. Patrick spread the gospel to Ireland. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries arrived in China. And in 8900, missionaries first set foot in Norway. The movement advanced further. By the year 1200, the Bible was available in 22 languages. In 1498, Kenya's first Christians were baptized. From 1555 to 1562, 2,000 churches were planted in France. By 1740, on the heels of the Great Awakening, 80% of Americans were involved in a local church. By 1890, Charles Spurgeon helped plant 200 churches in Britain, also sending planters to Australia, South Africa, and the Americas. And by 1985, after 25 years of missionary church planting, South Korean Christians grew tenfold to over 6.5 million. And on and on it goes. God accomplishing exactly what he said he would accomplish in Genesis 12 through. 
All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now hear me, there's plenty more we could say, but at least the question I want to ask is, how? How did that happen? How did a band of uneducated minority, uh, powerless Jesus followers in the first century lead to that? How did they bring about a message that literally swept the globe? How did these marginal people become the people that would then lead to the kingdom of God going to the ends of the earth to places they had not yet had data to even understand? I'll tell you, it did not happen. You can be sure, we can be sure, it did not happen because they imagined that being Christian meant I've got to have the right theological beliefs in my brain I've got to go to church on Sundays and wait to go to heaven when I die. It happened because they took Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount very seriously. And they believed him when he used two simple metaphors to describe who they were in the world. He said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And they heard that, and they took it seriously. And they believed it. And that happened. And so what I want us to consider is, what does that mean? What does it mean for them? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? What does it mean that we are the salt of the earth, and that we are the light of the world? So I want to suggest a few things. Here's the first. Being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity from the world. Hear that again. Being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity from the world. So let's, for a second, focus on that word distinct. Let's pay attention to that for a moment. And right off the bat, you come across sort of a paradox. Right? Paradox is that where two things seem to contradict, but yet both are true at the same time. And when you talk about us, Christians, being distinct, you come across a paradox. Because on the one hand, listen to me, all Christians are just like everybody else in the world. There's a sense in which we're like everybody else. Christians do not become Christians because there's anything better about them. Hear me. It's not that if you're here and you're a Christian, it's not for a moment that you're smarter than or more moral than or superior to or better than anyone else in the world. Right? Christianity is not for those who are good. In fact, when you hear Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount, He doesn't start off by saying, blessed are those who are good. He starts off by saying, blessed are those who essentially admit that they're very bad. Right? That's what it means. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, when it comes to morality and holiness and godliness, we're broke. That's who's blessed. Christianity, what's unique about Christianity, is that unlike any other worldview, this is the one place that says, to get in, you don't be good. To get in, you admit that you're very bad. That's how you get in. I mean, the centerpiece of the Christian faith is the cross, and the cross is the great equalizer for all the world, and says, everybody, was so sinful that Jesus had to die. And no one was good enough. The whole world needed a savior. And so Christianity is this one unique thing that there's this common ground of brokenness that unites everybody. Everybody in the world. And yet there's a paradox because at the same time, while we are just like everyone else, 
Christians are distinct. They're different. There's something distinct and different about you if you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you, and now pay attention for a second of the who the you is. Right, because Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, starts with saying, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So, so what happens? You've got all these crowds gathered around Jesus, but it's when his disciples come to him that Jesus is going to teach them, his disciples, knowing that the crowds are going to be listening. Right? That's like any Sunday morning at Sedma Road. I know there are some of you that are Christians, and I know there are some of you that are sort of exploring. You're sort of the crowds on the outskirt of this, wondering if you're going to come in. And Jesus is speaking, hoping that some in the crowds would actually move towards being disciples. But he is, mind you, addressing his disciples when he says, you, and what does he say? You are the salt of the earth. You, my disciples, you're the salt of this earth. That means by implication that the earth is a place needing salt. Right? There's a distinction being made. You're the salt in a world that needs salt. Now that, that metaphor goes right over our heads. But you can be sure that the first hearers of Jesus weren't lost. They knew exactly what salt was for. You see, salt wasn't just a condiment to spice up your food. They were living in the day before deep freezers and refrigerators. They were living in the day where you needed to pack meat with salt lest it spoil, lest it decay, lest it rot, lest it become putrid and decomposed. And so Jesus was saying, you live in a world that is decaying. You live in a world that is headed towards corruption. You live in a society that rots, that will stink. And in that rotting world, you are to be salt. You are to preserve. You're to have this effect that preserves the world around you. That as the society is going downhill in a hurry, you are to be the brakes that sort of slows down the descent. You're to be distinct. You're to be other. You're to be different. I haven't called you to just blend in with the rest of the world. I've called you to be distinct in the world. And so salt means that there's going to be something different about you. Right? So you're in high school. You're in college. And everybody talks a certain way. And they joke a certain way. And you don't. And you refrain. And before you know it, you become the sort of the butt of the joke where they go, oh, we can't say that because so-and-so is here. Now, you're not holier than thou. You're not morally superior. You're just, diff you're salt. You're different. That's what you're supposed to be. And salt sometimes bites. That, that's why it's salt. It, it's got to be salty. I live as though Jesus had said, you are to be the sugar of the world. And everybody's going to want more and more of you, and they just want to love you, and you can't get enough of you. And yet Jesus says, you are to be the salt of the earth. There's going to be at times a certain bite towards you. There's going to be a certain thing about you that, that runs counter to the world around you. And Jesus had warned that's going to happen. In fact, right before he said you are the salt of the earth, do you remember how he ends the Beatitudes? Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus has just finished saying to us, listen, the kingdom of this world is going to clash with the kingdom that I've come to install. These two kingdoms are not always going to mesh. And when that happens, the world will respond a certain way, but you are to be salt in the earth. You're to be distinct. You're to be light in the world. And, and listen, if you disciples are light, by implication, the world then is a place that needs light. Or to say it simply, the world is dark. The world is dark. And again, that metaphor was not lost on the first hearers that Jesus was speaking to. They lived in a world where electricity was not available at the flip of a switch. They lived in a world that when the sun went down, it got so dark you could not see your hand in front of your face. And in that world, they knew exactly what light was for. And Jesus was saying, in this world that is dark, you are the light of the world. You're meant to give direction. You're meant to show the way. And so what Jesus is saying to us, being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity from the world. But I want you to pay attention. We've looked at distinct. I want you to also pay attention to the words, we have been given. Being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity in the world. Notice Jesus doesn't say, become salt in the earth. Or notice he doesn't say, go be light in the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Meaning, these are not qualities that you need to strive towards. These are rather traits that you already are by virtue of your union with Christ. Hear me again. He's not giving you a command, go be salt and go be light. He's not telling you what to do, he's telling you what you already are. He's not giving you a command of what you need to do, he's giving you a statement of what your identity already is. By virtue of your union with Christ, you have been given, not earned, not strived, not worked for, you have been given a distinct identity. That when you connected with Jesus, not because of any intrinsic value in ourselves. Listen, it, it will sound incredibly pompous to our world that we would go around saying we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But we've got to qualify that by saying that's not because there's any kind of intrinsic quality about us. It's not that we are bent towards being preservative and we're bent towards being light. No, we by union with Christ have been given a distinct identity. You see, that's what Christianity is. Hear me. Christianity is not a checklist of beliefs that you checked off on. Christianity is this mysterious but real reality where you have been united with Christ. That's what Christianity is. That's why a historical mental ascent to some facts won't do. You can't just go, I believe there was a Jesus, I believe he died... Nobody talks about being in historical figures. I, I believe in George Washington. I wouldn't go around saying, I'm in George Washington. But the Bible over and over again is going to literally say, you are in Christ. You've been united with someone. In fact, that's what we celebrate in baptism. You have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and risen with Christ. You are united to Christ. And so because of your union with Christ... Jesus is the one who came into the world and said, I am the light of the world. 
And then, by virtue of your union with Him, because He is in the, the light of the world, and you are in Him, guess what you are? You are the light of the world. Right? Jesus is the one who came into this dark world and announced, I am the light of the world. And we are not the source of light. We're like the moon. The moon has no light of its own. It reflects light. It's a great light in the sky because it reflects the light that comes from the sun. Well, the sun is the light of the world and we, like moons, reflect his light. So because we are in him and he is the light of the world, we, by virtue of our union with him, have been given a distinct identity. We are now the light of the world. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, in a decaying world, you are the salt of the earth. In a dark world, you are the light of the world. And the disciples have been given a distinct identity from the world. But you can't stop there, because Jesus doesn't stop there. Because the second thing I want you to notice is that being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity for the world. It's just the difference of one word, but it makes all the difference in the world. It's not just that you have been given a distinct identity from the world, it's that you have been given a distinct identity for the world. You are given a distinct identity not only from the world, but for the world. Listen to what he says again in 13 to 15. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, you have been given a distinct identity from the world, but that distinct identity was given to you for the sake of the world, for the good of the world. You see, this is what Christianity does. Christianity is God swooping into your story, plucking you out from the world so that you're different and distinct and not like everyone else. And then not just keeping you isolated, but sending you right back into the world to be distinct and different for the sake of the world. He pulls you out, makes you different, and sends you right back in so that you can be his agent now in the world. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. And that's important because the world is decaying. You are the light of the world. And that's important because the world is dark. You're like a city set on a hill, he says. And again, the first hearers would have understood exactly what he meant. If you've gone to that place of the world, I had the chance to go there. You see that it's flat and then hills, and into the hills are built these towns and cities. And in those days, they were made of limestone, no electricity, so that almost the sun bouncing off would produce light for miles around. At night, you could see this white limestone for miles. It wasn't just carelessly put. Cities didn't just pop up. They were set there. They were strategically placed there. And so one pastor rightly said, it's as if Jesus is saying, don't you know you are a strategically placed light in this world? You're a city set, not, not just randomly on a hill, set, fixed, strategically placed in a hill. You, likewise, are a light that's strategically been placed in the world. 
And you go, no, 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 I got here because of a scholarship to UPenn. I came here because of a transfer. That's what brought me here. And Jesus would say, no, you're here as a strategically placed light in the world. You work at the place you work. You live in the house you live in. Because God chose to strategically place you in a dark world as a light. That's what you're here for. And when we push back and say, I don't want to be salt or light. I just want to be a Christian who goes to church on Sundays, believes the right things, and then is going to go to heaven when I die. We would be rightly corrected by Jesus who would say to us, I don't know where you learned that from. But what I've called you to be is salt of the earth and light in the world. That's the name I gave you. That's the identity that you have been given. You have been given a distinct identity for the sake of the world. That's who you are. You can't be anything other than salt. You can't be anything other than light. That's who God has now made you. And for you to isolate yourself from the world or assimilate yourself into the world, both will be the exact opposite of what Jesus has called you to be. Listen to me. Can you have salt that is not salty? Can you have a city that's hidden on a hill? Would you put a light and hide it under a blanket? The answer to all of those is no. It's, it's unthinkable. It's useless. Salt that isn't salty is useless. And that's why Jesus says you might as well take it out and throw it out onto the ground so that it can be trampled under people's feet. Light that is not seen is useless. You might as well light a lamp and put it under a basket or a blanket or a bowl. So likewise, don't miss this, is useless the so-called Christian who isolates himself from a dark world that needs him or assimilates himself into a decaying world that needs him to be distinct. So is useless the so-called Christian who isolates himself from a dark world that needs him to be present or assimilates himself into a decaying world that needs him to be distinct. You see, we received this call from Jesus. And those first disciples took seriously Jesus' words, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. What we tend to do is we tend to either isolate ourselves from the world or assimilate ourselves into the world. What we tend to do with culture is we go, that world is dark and decaying. Well, we better huddle together. We better find some walls to be safe in and we better create our own culture and have our own language and we better huddle together as much as we can so that we won't be contaminated by the decaying world. We don't want our kids hanging out there because then they'll be corrupted as well. And we do our best to build bunkers and isolate ourselves. And if we don't do that, we swing to the other end and we go, we want so badly to be liked in this world that we'll assimilate right in. And we blend in so that there is no difference about us and the world. Hear me. The world does not need another carbon copy of itself. The world doesn't need another carbon copy of itself. If, you, if there's nothing distinct about us, that's like salt that's lost its taste. Why would you dump salt in to your dish if it's just going to blend in and taste like everything else? At that point, you might as well throw it out into the streets and let it be trampled under people's feet. What's the point of throwing it in if it's not going to have any kind of different or distinct effect? 
If you value exactly what the world values, and you think exactly how the world thinks, and you treasure exactly what the world treasures, what on earth is distinct about you? Please don't let it be that what's distinct about us is we go to a certain place on Sundays and we've checked off boxes on a certain number of beliefs. If, if there's nothing about what we treasure that's different from the world, how are we being solved? Or if we run from the world and isolate ourselves, we're like lambs that are being hidden under baskets. And Jesus hasn't called us to isolate ourselves from the world like hidden lamps, or assimilate ourselves into the world like tasteless salt. He's called us to infiltrate and penetrate this decaying world and this dark world with salt and light. That's what he's called us to. <coughs> Jesus said, we are the salt of the world, of the earth, and light of the world. And that means that we are distinct from the world, but we are distinct for the sake of the world. And hear me, even when the world responds to us as Jesus hinted they would. When the kingdoms clash and the values of the kingdom of God clash with the kingdoms of this world, Jesus has already told us, blessed are you when they persecute you, when they revile you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you. When that day comes, no matter how the world responds to us, we are to still be for the world. Now why do we do that? Because we are citizens of the kingdom and that's what we saw our king do. That when they reviled him, he was for the world. When they persecuted him, he was for the world. When they uttered all kinds of evil against him, he was for the world. He was distinct in the world, and yet he was for the world. And so as citizens of his kingdom, who have been united with him, guess what we're to be? Distinct from the world, and for the world. Friends, isn't this what the gospel is? The gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, the good news is what? This world was dark. But the light of the world came into the world. John tells us, but men loved the darkness and hated the light. And so for a moment, the light of the world was snuffed out. That's what happened to him. They put him on a cross and buried him in a tomb. And it was as if for a moment, the light of the world had been snuffed out. It's as if the true salt of the earth, who had not lost his taste, had come into the world. And yet he was thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's what happened to him. So that he could do what? Take us who were in the darkness and bring us into his kingdom of light and make us the light of the world. Take us who were useless, who should have been trampled under people's feet and make us the salt of the earth. That's what the gospel did. The light, the salt came into the world and was snuffed out and was trampled under people's feet so that we who were dark and useless might become the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That's the good news. And all of this is to the glory of God. So that's the last thing I want you to hear and then we'll be done. The third, being salt and light means that we have been given a distinct identity for the glory of God. Hear that. We've been given a distinct identity from the world, for the world, for the glory of God. Listen to what he says in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? He tells us who we are, and he gives us one sentence about what we need to do, and what he says is, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here's what he's saying. 
When you and I live distinct in the world, and we live as salt in a decaying world and light in a dark world, and others see our light, and he tells us what that is, our good works. When others see our good works, it is to lead to the glory of God, our Father who is in heaven. That is that when they see your life and your good works, your light, it's supposed to help them connect the dots between who you are and who your God is. That somehow the dots are supposed to be connected so that when they see your good works, God gets the glory. Now, think about that for a second with me. You do the good works. Why does God get the glory? Right? When they see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. You do the good works. Why is it that God gets the glory? Let me give you an example. Uh, a few weeks ago, Five or six of us guys were sitting around. It was right after the NBA Finals. And so immediately the conversation is about LeBron James, and pretty soon the conversation goes to the, the common debate now, who's the greatest of all time? So you got some of us arguing for the clear answer, which is Michael Jordan, and then some of us arguing for LeBron James. And so we're going back and forth. In my mind, this is a no-brainer, right? Uh, it's, it's obviously Michael Jordan. And then... Uh, I remember Johnson was there. Johnson starts spitting out some facts. The brother is like a sports almanac. So he's just spitting out facts, and he's making a compelling case. So, so what he starts telling us is that Jordan had this surrounding cast around him, this supporting cast around him, in such a way that when Jordan retired, they still went deep into the playoffs. And so he made this compelling case for who Jordan had assembled around him as to why Jordan was so great. And so there was sort of two sides to this debate. And you did wonder, was it really Jordan or was it the supporting cast around Jordan? Now listen, God would never have that kind of debate. You know why? When you and I go to play basketball, or this afternoon a bunch of us play volleyball, and you need to pick teams, how do you pick teams? You stand around for a little while and you watch everybody. And you size everybody up, right? And then when it's time to play, you go, oh, he can play. That, that's on my team. Oh, she can play. All right, she's on my team. And you assemble together the greatest crew you can find so that you can win. That's how we all pick teams. I mean, for some of you, this is bringing back nightmares from gym class when you were the last one, right? So I know you know what this is. That's how we pick teams. One preacher said it like this. God, however, is the worst talent scout there is. You know why? God shows up on a court and he stares for a little while and he goes, oh, she can't play. All right, come on. Join my team. Oh he, can't, oh, he can't even jump. Come, you're, you're on my team. <laughs> Nobody picked her. All right, she's on my team. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures who God assembles around him? He always picks the absolute scrubs so that when something great happens, there's no question about how that happened. There's no question about how that global thing happened. Nobody's going, those first people must have been amazing. He picks the absolute scrubs so that when good works are done to them, it, it is a no-brainer who gets the glory, who gets the credit, who gets the honor, who gets the recognition. Jesus picked us who were from darkness and brought us into the light of his kingdom and made us the light of the world so that if any good works come from this dark life of mine, there'd be no doubt that must be to the glory of our Father who is in heaven. He took us who were useless, who should have been trampled under people's feet. 
and made us the salt of the earth so that if there is any preserving effect that my life, your life, has on the world around you, there's no question about who gets the glory. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is that your life is to have good works in such a way that it, as one preacher said, helps people connect the dots. Your good deeds are not just supposed to be generic so that people walk around going, you know, he, he's such a good guy. She, she's such a nice lady. No, they're supposed to be so over the top that, that the world goes, nobody's that nice. I mean, there's got to be something about that. Nobody's that generous. Nobody's that sacrificial. Nobody's that selfless. I mean, your deeds are supposed to be so over the top, so consistently over the top, that people have to start connecting the dots between not just you, there's got to be something beyond you. Your deeds are supposed to speak of not just who you are, but who your God is. Let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. And some my road, hear me. In some great ways, you're doing that. I was with a bunch of our GCM, that's our smaller communities, leaders for breakfast yesterday. And for about two hours, all we did was swap stories about you. These leaders shared different stories about what was happening in these smaller communities through you. And I'm telling you, your light is shining in the world. I mean, all of us who sat there, our hearts were brimming with encouragement as we heard story after story. And we know who you are. So it is to the glory of God that good works are done through this church. Right? I, I heard Willow Grove talk about how they have gone into this underprivileged section of their community served consistently, built a computer lab, for goodness sakes, 23 computers now for kids who didn't have computers before, uh, served cooking classes and photography and, and all these different ways so that now there are folks from the outside going, you guys are from that church, right? They heard that. What is that? That means, sure, people help, but, but no one does it like this. What is it about you? You're from that church, right? Or Bucks County, GCM told us how they're serving with Christ home and they're serving these children. They're wondering if they're making a difference until one of their organizers comes and tells them, we can count on you guys. You guys consistently come. And you make an incredible difference in these children's lives. Your light is being shined in such a way that others see your good works and notice. And eventually are going to connect the dots to your Father who's in heaven. Or I can tell you, I sat with Mike Biscoccio this week for lunch. He started coming just a few weeks ago. How he started coming was because Mike Bowder, one of the guys in our church, is at his work. And he gave me permission to tell you. So he was going through some stuff. He shared it with Mike Bowder. Mike Bowder said to him, I'll be praying for you. And he told me, I went away thinking, that is so weird. Who says that? And he said, none of my friends talk like that. I've never heard that before. And he just thought, all right, dude, you do whatever you want to do. That's fine. And he walked away. But he said he later kept thinking, I guess that's what Christians do for each other. They pray for each other. And he said that stuck. To the point, fast forward, the brothers come to this church, and in August he's going to get baptized. Amen. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, how does some poor, meek, hungry, 
thirsty, sad, persecuted, reviled, insulted people. Advance the gospel and the kingdom of God till it reaches the ends of the earth. It's because they take seriously Jesus' words. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we glorify you together for sending your Son, who is the light of the world, into this dark world where men loved the darkness and hated the light and treated shamefully the light of the world and for a brief moment snuffed him out. He was trampled under people's feet, tossed about, all for us. But he rose again, sent his Spirit, and has created a people, the lowest and least of the world and called them onto his team and by union with him we have become what you told us we are so please help seven mile road church to go from here and live as light in a dark world and salt in a decaying culture in such a way that others in our city would glorify our father who is in heaven do that in a thousand ways we ask and pray in jesus name the Lord, week after week, feeds us with His Word, but then through no words, He feeds us with a meal called communion. And communion shouts loudly everything we have been talking about. It doesn't say a word, and yet this meal shouts the gospel. This meal that Jesus left His disciples is bread and cup. And He said, when you come and take it, you're to remember that my body was broken, just like this bread has been broken. And my blood was shed, just like this cup is been poured out for you. So remember that when you come. So if you are here and you belong to Jesus Christ, if you're a citizen of his kingdom,